Hello and welcome back to the PSC in Conversation. The PSC is a specialist consultancy dedicated to improving public services, so this podcast is designed to tell you everything you need to know about the big issues affecting the public sector right now. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts if you'd like to stay up to date. This is Fiona. I'm from the PSC's digital team and I'm taking over hosting the Living With Legacy mini-series this week. Over the past few weeks, we've been interviewing digital specialists across the public sector to get their tips and tricks on how to manage legacy systems and to share the challenges they faced. And this week is no different. Although I'd argue it's even better than normal as we'll be speaking to a real life rocket engineer. I'm really pleased to introduce our very special guest this week, Dr. Adam Baker. He's worked in the UK space sector for over 20 years, founded the UK Launch Services Limited, which enables low-cost small satellite orbital launch capability from the UK, and is all around committed to getting the UK back into space. We can't wait to pick his brains on satellites, legacy systems, and much more. Adam, welcome. Fiona, lovely to be introduced by you and great to be here on the show. It's great to be speaking to you again. So I guess, first of all, could you tell us a bit about what you do now and what brought you to work in the space sector? So I've got multiple day jobs at the moment, Uh, probably about a day a week. I'm a part-time visiting lecturer at Cranfield University. In fact, that's where I'm I'm, I'm at today. I'm helping a student set up a rocket engine test, which I'll be going back to after this. Uh, And I teach space propulsion and launch vehicles on their astronautics and space engineering MSc. So that keeps me busy about a day a week. Um, Most of my day job is as technical director of a small company called UK Launch Services Limited, which I helped set up back in 2017. And UK Launch Services is, the technical term is a system integrator. It's better thought of as a company that provides essential glue in the form of services to go between companies building rockets and uh, organizations responsible for making spaceports happen. A spaceport, I guess I'll explain a bit more about that later, is like the space equivalent of an airport where rockets are processed, connected to satellites, fueled, safety checked, and lift off to take things into space. So my company UKLSL designs spaceports, uh, sustainable spaceports for the new space age, and I'm the technical director there. And then I have a few other pieces of consultancy work that I do as well, helping out the PSC on things like developing space surveillance and tracking tools for the UK Space Agency. And in any spare minutes of the day, which there aren't very many, uh, I do attempt to build the odd or design the odd rocket engine or at least support students doing so. Um, That's a bit of a starter for 10, I guess. That sounds amazing. So I guess if we take a step back for our listeners that don't quite share your passion for getting the UK into space just yet, why do you think it's so important? So why is space important? Gosh, where do I even begin with that one? Space enables us to do a whole range of things from the sort of the the slightly more abstract understanding the universe and how the planets and the solar system that we live in came to be and wondering whether or trying to find out whether there's life elsewhere in the universe or whether we're unique but actually it fulfills a huge number of really important roles in society Um, we know about climate change and global warming and the hole in the ozone layer because of space systems that are up there looking down and can help us monitor our planet on a global scale. We are able to navigate ourselves across London, um, across the oceans, work out where our airliners are, where our trucks providing goods are. In fact, there's a whole suite of navigation related services that 
contrary to popular belief, don't really come through the mobile phone network, although that sometimes helps, but they actually come from several fleets of satellites, partly from the US, some from Europe, and some from other countries like India and China. Um, and satellites provide extraordinary amounts of communication for people in remote areas, people on aircraft, people on ships, and explorers. So there's a whole suite of navigation, and earth observation and imaging and weather, of course, near-term weather forecasting services and communication-related things that come from space. But the real key service, the, the one that is not at all obvious, is actually a universal timing signal. And this has come about as a result of the GPS, Global Positioning System Constellation, which provides, in order to do its positioning and tracking, you have to know what the time is, otherwise you can't work out sort of when signals were received and therefore where you are or where you might have been. And this universal timing signal is actually used all around the world to synchronize stock markets, to synchronize traffic lights, uh, so that sort of city traffic doesn't sort of uh, come to a standstill, um, and also to organize hospital operations. That There's a huge range of things that are reliant on this timing signal that um, uh, actually comes from space. And without space technology, we wouldn't have that. So space is ubiquitous, but also quite good at being almost invisible. Most people don't realize that space technology helps them out from the minute they leave the, the door in the morning till you know when they finish watching their, their final newscast in the evening. That's fascinating. I guess I don't normally think about how much of my day-to-day -day life just relies on satellites. Um, but I guess picking up on that, we'd love to talk about satellites a bit more. So we recently talked with Emily Mills at the UK Space Agency in a recent episode around space debris. So I was wondering if we could talk a bit more about satellites living and dying, and then maybe later on move on to your own specialisation of launches. So just to kick off, like how many satellites are whizzing around up there? And like, do we know how many of those are still active? So operational satellites, I believe the number is about a thousand and it's going up by sort of hundreds every year with, with new companies like Elon Musk's Starlink launching sort of tens of satellites every month. Um, in terms of things that are up there that we should be concerned about that are remains of satellites, pieces of satellites, other bits of debris and junk, the number sort of varies between about 20 and about 25,000 in the size ranges we can measure. The difficulty is tracking things up in space. You need, uh, generally speaking, radars uh, or, or transponders on existing bits of debris so you can see that they're there so what we know is there what we can directly measure is sort of somewhere slightly above 20,000 and those are generally things that are above about the size of a, a cricket ball roughly 10 centimeters however there's a much bigger population of, of debris and bits and pieces of defunct satellites and paint flakes and supposedly the odd astronaut glove up there that is much much smaller that we can only infer and model and the estimates sort of range from about sort of 900,000 pieces of stuff um, sort of about a one centimeter size or bigger to tens or even hundreds of millions of pieces of debris going down to the kind of millimeter or sub millimeter size all of which could have different effects on satellites depending on uh, whether they cross paths or, or worst case impact and i guess if we think about the ones that are operational like if we talk about hardware presumably it's really hard to add like a new battery or more ram like how, how do you even do that so satellites like all 
consumer items, electronics, mechanical systems, they're, they're designed to last for a certain amount of time. And it's credit to the amazing ability of space engineers that they last as long as they do, because space is a pretty tough environment. It's 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 high vacuum, so there's no air. Um, there's extremes of temperature. There's, there's debris. There's radiation. There's all sorts of things. So most satellites are designed to last, well, for the small sort of university experimental ones, perhaps a year or so, up to about 15 to 20 years or more. And they, ca they can't be serviced, largely because physically getting to the satellite, it's hard enough to put a satellite there in the first place if you don't have to go back to it later on in order to, and then dock with it and connect with it and perhaps extract parts and, as you suggested, change batteries. This, this all becomes increasingly impractical. It was attempted by the US Space Shuttle, which was designed as a servicing truck to either connect to satellites and replace parts, and they did this two or three times with the Hubble Space Telescope, which was one of the more expensive, more demanding, uh, more challenging satellites. But they found rapidly that the economics of actually launching things into space, finding satellites, docking with them, servicing them, perhaps replacing batteries or solar panels or refueling or replacing other parts such as attitude control systems was just not economical. So for the moment, satellites are unfortunately designed in, in the worst sort of environmental sense to be completely disposable. They often last a lot longer than people thought, but occasionally they, they, they fail very early on due to sort of design flaws or manufacturing defects. But the, the biggest problem at the moment is actually satellites that reach the end of their life and then stop working and then stop maneuvering and start to tumble and gradually change orbits and in the very worst case can actually collide with other spacecraft causing clouds of debris to appear. And presumably that, that just creates another new problem with more debris and it will hit more, more objects. Every piece of debris has the potential to create additional pieces of debris and and so on and so forth you can see a cascade and there was a a researcher called kessler who i think in the 1970s predicted that in certain orbits uh, if enough satellites were put up there and they weren't effectively disposed of which means pushed to a higher orbit or brought back down to earth to burn upon re-entry you would actually get a slow cascade of debris building up to the point where these entire orbits so between certain altitudes and at certain orientations around the earth effectively the space would be unusable due to vast amounts of floating debris and and, and the, the, the challenge is again maybe not quite so obvious unless you understand a bit about orbit mechanics so in order to get into space, you need to be traveling at about 10 kilometers a second. So that's about 20, 25,000 miles an hour. And that's fine if everything else is traveling in the same direction at the same velocity. But actually, things are often traveling in different directions. So orbits go over the poles, orbits go around the equators. And if you imagine two things coming together uh, with sort of 90 degree angle between them, and they're both traveling at 25,000 miles an hour, the amount of energy involved in that potential impact, even if they're tiny, tiny pieces of material, can be huge. And, and the space shuttle for example was routinely hit by small pieces of what they thought were paint flecks and they would create sort of giant craters in the windows fortunately the space shuttle windows were sort of two or three inches thick toughened glass but various parts of the the cargo bay um, were sort of peppered with with um, effectively what looked like buckshot when they came down and you could see the dents and the dings um, as, as it returned and there are satellites that have actually been launched into space and then recovered and they've measured the amount of debris impacts on these things and it's quite extraordinary. Mostly it's the solar panels of spacecraft that takes the hit from orbital debris because they're quite large they're the size of tennis courts um, and a lot of debris just passes straight through those which is not so bad it gradually degrades the solar panels but um, what it can do is if, if it strikes a critical part 
or a pressurized part, which is perhaps where an astronaut might be working, the effects could be much more catastrophic. So I guess we've we've kind of touched on the hardware, but I guess if we talk a bit about software, like my phone will often tell me that it's had an update overnight. Like, can you do that with satellites? Can you update software or do you have to get everything right the first time? Well, the neat thing with satellites is the software in some ways, or at least the uploading of it, is, is the easy bit. And certainly the satellites that I used to work on for a company called Surrey Satellite Technology, SSTL, they were launched almost clean of software. And um, the, the, the ground station would make contact with the satellite after it had separated from the launcher. They'd do what's called a detumbling maneuver, because normally the satellite comes off and it's sort of slowly rotating from the fact that mechanical forces are not evenly balanced when it gets pushed off the launcher by basically a large spring system so that the, the ground station engineers would take control and they'd upload a very simple set of code to instruct the satellite to uh, work out what its orientation was and to slowly right itself and point its solar panels at the sun and point its antennas to the ground and then once that had been done and you could guarantee a clear connection every time the satellite comes up over the horizon and passes overhead you could then start to upload the full flight software which actually allows the designers to work on the flight software until sort of very late on in the mission. So normally you wouldn't preload all the software. You'd have some basic code on there perhaps to help the satellite get started and stabilize itself. But then what you would do is you'd upload your software from the ground. And of course, what you can then do is you can improve the software. So you can add patches, you can do bug fixing, you can do all the things that you do with um, uh, ground-based computer systems in terms of modifying them and improving them and trying out new ideas and having simulating these things on the ground before you test it, all via a remote link. And I guess what about viruses or hacking? Is that a risk that we need to worry about? Well, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in that area. It's obviously of increasing concern as the the, the world recognises the, the extraordinary value that space systems bring us. Um, there have been cases I'm aware of where satellites have been hacked, but one thing you need to consider is that it's actually quite a specialist piece of work to communicate with the satellite. You need what's called a ground station. Um, you need uh, a number of um, specialist pieces of equipment to convert the information stream that comes down from the satellite, which is normally encoded and it's compressed and occasionally it's encrypted into the right a stream of information that computer can understand. What you also need to do is obviously have usually quite a large dish because the signal coming from space is, is quite weak. Satellites don't have a lot of power. Most of them um, uh, radiate the same amount of power as a small light bulb and they're several hundred kilometers away. So you can imagine you need quite a sensitive and generally quite large antenna to, to pick up that faint um, uh, signal. You also need to be pointing it in the right direction and you need to be tracking it at the right rate. So duplicating the ground station is quite difficult. So actually directly talking to a satellite is a slightly trickier task without a lot of specialized and relatively expensive equipment. But of course, what you can do is you can potentially hack an existing ground station. So ground stations are really just computers and they run on operating systems like Linux and Windows and Mac OS. So it's not particularly difficult if you have the, the right understanding and some of the right equipment to potentially hack the ground station and take that over. And 
transmit spurious commands to the satellites or intercept the data. Um, and there have been some cases where it's recognized that's been done. It's perhaps surprising that it hasn't been done more often. Perhaps um, hackers sort of have, you know, different value targets in mind. But I think in 2020, the United States government kind of sponsored an initiative to see whether people could actually hack one of their satellites in order to find out how easy it was. Um, I don't know whether the competition is still ongoing or not, but um, they want to understand, you know, what the particular threats are, uh, how easy it would be, how people might actually do that, um, and um, in order to work out ways to counter it. So it's becoming an increasing concern, although it's certainly not something that, that we need to be worried about, that we're going to have satellites falling out of the sky due to being hacked and commanded to, to re-enter. Um, not yet, anyway. I was also wondering, do, does it make a difference um, on which orbit satellites are in? And could you explain a bit about the different types of orbits for our listeners that are less familiar? Uh, depends what you mean by make make a difference. Um, the satellite orbit is very specific to the particular function that it needs to do. So there are, I guess, two really broad classes of orbits. There are sort of high high orbits in what's called geostationary, and these typically are around the equator of the Earth. Um, they're up at about 36,000 kilometers in altitude, so several times the actual um, diameter of the Earth. And the reason for that particular altitude is if you put a satellite in that orbit around the equator, it will travel around its orbit at exactly the same rate that the Earth rotates. So it appears to hang motionless in the sky. So all you need to do is work out where the satellite is relative to your ground station, your antenna on the ground, point it at it, and it stays fixed. And they do a lot of what's called fixed satellite services. So they're particularly good at broadcasting over regions um, or, to, or looking, for example, at the hemisphere of the Earth. That's the geostationary orbit. Um, and those satellites are used for communications, for remote sensing for kind of signals listening from the military, a range of different things. And around the sort of circumferential equatorial belt of the Earth, there are probably several, I would say there are probably close to close to a thousand satellites in geostationary, most of which are, are operating. And those are designed to last for quite a long time, 15 to 20 years or more. They're quite expensive. They're fairly large. They're sort of 100 million pound things that are uh, the size of a single or occasionally a double-decker bus. And they're the kind of the main money spinners of the space industry. The other class of orbits, lower Earth orbits, are typically up to about perhaps a thousand kilometers. Kilometers, um, sometimes just a few hundred kilometers. The space station sits in one of those, and those can be oriented in 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 any particular what's called orbital plane. So if you imagine the Earth as a slowly rotating ball in space around the equator, if you imagine a sort of a plane that cuts through the Earth at the, at the equator, that's the geostationary orbit. But you could move that plane, that orbital plane, to any orientation you want. So some satellites pass over the poles, so they travel around in a north-south direction, and the Earth slowly rotates under them. So over a period of time, they will actually pass over every single point on the Earth. And the repeat period might be anything from a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And those are often used for sort of Earth resources monitoring. They're looking at um, how crops are growing. They're looking at patterns of land use. They're looking at actually insurance claims for where fields have been sort of flattened due to poor weather. They're looking at where the icebergs are moving. They're looking at how forest fires are, are developing and what they're potentially likely to burn and what they've left behind. There's a huge range of uses for all of those. But increasingly, communications satellites are also being put in low Earth orbit. Reason being is that if you're closer to the Earth, 
Earth, the time it takes a signal to go from someone sending a message to bouncing off the satellite to coming back down again to another user nearby or in another country is greatly decreased. So what's called the latency is is reduced. Think of geostationary satellites, the big ones, as kind of a, a, a backbone providing sort of fixed rate uh, communications but where time is not necessarily critical but there are increasingly fleets of satellites being put in low earth orbit such as OneWeb and Starlink to provide telephony and broadband which will cover the entire globe and actually be almost as responsive as you can get through kind of ground-based cables and fiber optics. So I guess we talked a lot about like active satellites that are operational. Can you talk a bit about satellites that aren't active anymore? Like what happens to them? Uh, they they are causing increasing headaches, I would say, to the to the space industry. So um, there's a large number, probably several thousand satellites uh, in in various stages of, of repair or disassembly that are in in various orbits, including a lot of debris that some of them have left behind when occasionally they've exploded or been hit by another spacecraft. For the ones that are defunct and intact and ideally are not rotating too fast, there is an increasing interest in working out how we get rid of those. Uh, it's quite a tricky problem because you have to find the satellite. It's probably powered down. It's not communicating. It can be rotating in various different axes. It could be rotating quite fast. One example is Envisat, which is uh, about a, a 10 ton satellite built for environmental monitoring by the European Space Agency. Um, about, and I think it was, it finished its life probably about five, six years ago. It might have been a little bit longer. And that one is now in a, in a low orbit, about 800 kilometers and is unresponsive and has to be got rid of. So it's a 10-ton lump of stuff that you have to deal with. Now, do you either push it up to a high orbit? Well, that, that's possible, although if you're only a few hundred kilometers up, it makes a lot more sense to grab onto it, gently push it down to the point where the Earth's atmosphere is thick enough. It is obviously pretty thin, too thin to breathe up there in low orbits, but it's it's um, there's enough drag that it would create to slowly bring the satellites, what's called the, the perigee, down, which is the point of lowest approach to the closest approach. It would bring it down and down and down to the point where actually it would then rapidly re-enter. So um, there are companies such as Astroscale, and clean space over in Switzerland looking to develop the first, well, they are in the process of developing the first spacecraft that will rendezvous, dock, capture, grab, and push other defunct satellites out of orbit. And an Astroscale is particularly looking at the OneWeb constellation, which is still in the process of being put into place, but that will be several hundred, I think close to six or 700 spacecraft, which will have a life uh, between five and 10 years. And when they, when they time expire, they'll need to be removed from orbit. So there's a big business model there looking at cleaning up what other satellite companies leave behind once they've made their money and moved on to the next generation. And, and that's the first sort of phase of, of, of trying to make space a little bit more what I call sustainable. I guess we've got to worry about recycling things everywhere. Um, so yeah. Space is not a very good place for recycling things. It's a very kind of disposable society in a way, Fiona. So Adam, I know that you're a launch expert. So I was wondering, are there any legacy aspects to launching satellites that we need to worry about? So what happens to rocket bodies? Like, do they just head into the sea? 
Yeah. Um, so depending on the specific architecture of the rocket, by architecture, I mean sort of how many stages, what orbits does it go to, how does it connect to the satellites, what often happens is there is an upper stage. Rockets are built in stages, so multiple parts, and that's the kind of the efficient way of, of launching satellites into space. So that the first part of the rocket is sort of big and heavy and full of fuel, and it's designed to lift the, the whole system off the ground, get it going, move it above the atmosphere, and then that rapidly runs out of fuel and detaches. So the tanks and the rocket engines then typically fall down to the in, into the sea, usually, occasionally onto the ground, or in the case of um, SpaceX's um, uh, Falcon 9 rocket, they actually recover those back onto an ocean-based platform or onto the land. The upper part of the rocket, which is generally traveling much, much faster, it's going several kilometers a second, up to sort of tens of thousands of miles an hour. It's by the time it's it's even started operating, it's as much as halfway around the world from the launch site. That one is much trickier to recover. So that one will need to go into orbit actually to the point where the satellite is and eject one or more satellites from it. And then that continues in space for a while. So one of the, the concerns about particularly the large numbers of really small rockets that are looking to be built to launch the large numbers of small satellites the world is also interested in is what happens with those upper stages. Is there a way to ensure that they will re-enter and then dispose of themselves? And obviously a rocket stage is quite a bit larger than a satellite. It's made of slightly different materials. It's it's largely propellant tanks, which might be fairly large pieces of metal or occasionally carbon composite. It's got some fairly heavy rocket engines at the back, which are typically made of quite high temperature resistant alloys. So getting those to dispose of themselves and ensure that they either land in the sea or actually completely disintegrate and burn up on the way down to the ground is an ongoing problem. And in fact, there are still some uh, rocket bodies from um, earlier programs, such as I think the Apollo, where they sent astronauts out to the moon that are still up in orbit, even a couple of decades after that. So those are a slightly less concern because they, they're quite far out and they're unlikely to re-enter by themselves. But the, the increasing move towards launching more things and launching on small rockets does mean that the sustainability of that side of things and how you actually make sure that you don't add to the space debris problem created by satellites by adding rocket pieces to it also needs to be thought about. And I guess what about carbon legacy? Is is that a problem? One of the questions that is raised whenever uh, a new business is, is setting up, or particularly when government supports a new business, is, is how much energy is involved in it. What's the net embodied energy? What's the carbon footprint? What's the carbon impact of that? Um, and the, the launch program in the UK, which is looking to have some sort of tens of launches from one or more spaceports a year starting next year in 2022, is having to make a number of environmental assessments. There's the obvious things, such as how much CO2 do these rockets produce when they when they ignite their engines and um, launch from the ground. But there's the less obvious things, such as what's the, what's the impact on the local environment and the fact that you may sort of uh, disturb animal wildlife, you may disrupt traffic patterns. But also the wider question is, what's the energy built into a rocket launch system and as a result the overall um, carbon dioxide production from doing that so you have to you have to mine the metal to build the rocket you have to then process it you have to assemble it you have to weld it all together you often have to ship parts from different places different countries and bring them together um, and there have been some studies done into how much energy is involved in 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 rockets fortunately the overall cost to the environment is still relatively small compared to say aviation or road transport 
because there just aren't many rockets launched. Over the entire course of the space industry, which is 50-something years, there have been about 5,000 launches. So it's about 100 launches a year compared to the tens of millions of airline flights that take place every day around the world. That's tiny. But, of course, airliners are reused. That's good, although their, um, their aviation fuel is burnt. Whereas with rockets, they're completely disposed of and fall into the sea and potentially sink and may cause uh, marine hazards as well. So if we're looking at greatly increasing the amount of rocket traffic into space in order to do more space things, which is obviously a benefit to society and exciting when we think about potentially taking people out to Mars, then we do have to consider the environmental impact of complete end-to-end launch systems um, and one of the ways of perhaps dealing with that is to look to more reusable launch systems in the future even the smallest rockets such as rocket lab from new zealand have been very successful over the last couple of years are starting to reuse their first stages and ultimately if we can think of a way to get the upper stage of the rocket back or keep it in space and you know repurpose it for something else that would be beneficial and some of the other neat things that are being thought of are could we actually use um fuels rocket propellant that have been um, uh, developed from um, uh, environmentally sustainable sources. So Orbex, which is a company looking to launch from Scotland next year, is using bio-LPG. So it's, it's, um, its fuel is actually produced from a sustainable, sustainably produced uh, source of hydrocarbons as opposed to sort of digging it out of fossil fuel reserves. Um, and also, longer term, there may be the potential to put sort of solar energy to use to potentially um, electrolyze water to give you hydrogen and oxygen, which two other rocket fuels as well and there are some spaceports such as Macrahanish looking at how they could connect the sort of the interest in hydrogen infrastructure to the world of rockets in order to develop more sustainable launch and fueling and test and research approaches as well. Well I think that sounds like a really encouraging point to end on perhaps so Adam uh, thank you so much for joining us it's been great to talk to you and really interesting to hear about some of the legacy aspects but also some of the newer initiatives that are taking place as well so thank you so much for joining us my pleasure fiona it's been really good to talk to you um, i hope the listeners find it interesting and um do get in touch if you're interested to hear more about space and the legacy aspects of, of space flight well, i have to say space flight from the uk hasn't quite started yet we're on the sort of the finishing stretch probably of a program that started as long ago as 2012 and hopefully the first launches from two or three different spaceports sutherland potentially newquay and maybe even shetland are likely to be happening in 2022 so watch this space for some new exciting things and maybe you'll invite me back onto the podcast again at some point next year to talk about how that's all gone watch this space so this has been the PSC in conversation thanks so much for listening and we'll be back with another episode next monday to continue our legacy series where we'll hear from another expert on their experience and top tips for working with legacy systems Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or we'd love to hear from you with questions, comments, or suggestions at hello at the psc.co.uk. Thanks for listening.